So today we come to the last section of Revelation chapter 11, the title of today's message, The Sound of Victory. Please follow along as I read verses 15 through 19 of chapter 11, reading first of all from the English Standard Version. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become, notice the verb tense there, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. There ends the reading of God's infallible and inerrant word. You know, uh, when I was a pastor in upstate New York, I've referred to this many times. Um, One of the things, though, to which I had to become adjusted, and anybody who locates to that particular area does, is the horse racing season. Yes, every August, the city of Saratoga Springs, which is five or ten miles from where I lived and where the church was that I pastored, that city attracts thousands and thousands of horse racing fans. I mean, the Saratoga horse races are up there with the, uh, the Preakness and Belmont and, uh, you know, the, the one they have in Louisville, Kentucky, the big one, you know. But in all the years that I lived there, I never went to any of those races. But one thing I do know about the horse racing season is that they always would begin each race by blowing a trumpet to call the horses to the starting line. The sounding of the trumpet was meant to send a message. So it is here, too, in the book of Revelation, my friends. Previously, John has been told to go and measure the temple of God. And he has been shown the the two witnesses. We talked about that last week. These witnesses who brought testimony against old covenant Israel. Those were and are two of the three divisions of this all-important 11th chapter of the book of Revelation. And today, we've come to this third section that brings us to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Now, the sixth trumpet, just to refresh your memory, we heard about in chapter 9, verse 13. But look again at 11.15. The angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Some of you may remember back in the 1980s, there was a conflict, a war actually, between Great Britain and the country of Argentina. They went to war over a group of islands off the coast of Argentina, the Falkland Islands. And that wasn't a major, major conflict, but it was a war nonetheless. The issue that led to that war was the issue of sovereignty. Britain claimed that They were sovereign over the Falkland Islands, but Argentina claimed that they were. The problem is you simply cannot have two sovereigns or two kings who both claim dominion over the same kingdom or same piece of land. In a situation like that, 
somebody must give in, give up, or be defeated. Now, in the case of the Falkland Islands conflict, Britain won the war and retained sovereignty over those islands. In verse 15 of chapter 11, we are told, in so many words, the sovereignty of the world has become the sovereignty of our Lord and of His Christ. Before Christ came into the world, the entirety of God's creation was under the pretended, and that's all it was, the pretended rule of Satan. Satan claimed sovereignty over that which God had created. You know, God gave the world to Adam for his dominion, and Adam was to be the king of God's creation. He was to rule this creation under the authority of his creator. Satan's plan was to gain control over God's creation, and he attempted to do that by gaining control over the one whom God has appointed as his vice-regent, his vice-president, if you will. And when Adam sinned, Satan, for a time at least, came very close to assuming that power to himself. But in God's providence, he sent his son to be the second Adam, and he took authority over all creation in the name of his heavenly Father, our God Almighty. Now, in the context from which these verses come to us, and the focal point of this great cosmic struggle, it's that piece of real estate in Palestine called Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem, you had the great symbol of what had appeared to be Satan's ultimate triumph over God. That symbol was the murder of God's only begotten son. Satan found willing accomplices in the leaders of the Jews, but they certainly did not expect Jesus to rise again from the dead on the third day. And by doing that, and by ascending into heaven and taking his seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, Christ won the ultimate victory over Satan. And a major component of his physical victory over Satan would come with the destruction of Jerusalem. You see, the spiritual health of the nation of Israel had reached its absolute lowest point. It did so because of Satan's influence over its leaders. Now, that didn't just start with the time of Jesus. It went much further back. Those men were no longer the light to the nations that God called them to be. As a matter of fact, they had become a hindrance to the advance of God's truth on the earth, and the city... And the temple at Jerusalem were the ultimate symbols of that rebellion and that idolatry insulting God Almighty. To the leaders of the Jews, <clears throat> Jerusalem, Palestine, <clears throat> it was all they cared about. But you see, the Lord wanted his law word set forth to all the nations, all the world. And the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, that more than anything else, would cause that to happen. I've shared with you before the quote from Dr. R.C. Sproul's preface to the second or third edition of the Parousia by J. Stuart Russell, this great book on preterist interpretation of the Bible. And Dr. Sproul makes it clear in that preface, and I think he wrote this in the maybe early 1990s, somewhere in that time frame, you know, he, he had not been familiar with this emphasis on the, uh, what the book of Revelation is actually teaching and the, the, the partial preterist understanding of Matthew 24 and Luke 21, etc. And through the influence of our former pastor here, Dr. Gentry, and a number of other 
uh, Reformed writers, <clears throat> Dr. Sproul, began reading this material. He was asked to write the preface to this edition of the book. And in that preface, he says that he doesn't agree with everything and all the conclusions of J. Stuart Russell. But he said, I will never be able to read the New Testament again without understanding now the central significance of the destruction of the temple and its place in redeeming the world, the place in redemptive history. That's a major, major point, my friends. And the reason it's significant is because of that destruction in A.D. 70. That, more than anything, would cause the law word of God to be spread among the nations. Because with the fall of Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ was thrust out into the world of the Roman Empire. And that would eventually lead to the conversion of almost every nation of the known world of that day. So in the midst of the great tragedy of A.D. 70, God was setting in motion a plan that would usher in great victory for the church. Now I think we all know, there are those folks who believe that the sovereignty of Christ does not actually begin until his, what they call, his second coming. And people who believe that way are convinced that Christ is not now ruling over the kingdom of the world, as the book of Revelation clearly says that he is. I mean, I don't know what they think that he's been doing or what he's doing right now. But the Bible certainly doesn't teach that he, he doesn't become king until after he returns. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, has been, not will be, has been given to me. 1 Peter 3, 22, Christ has gone to heaven where he has the highest position that God gives, where he has the highest position. Angels, rulers, and powers have been placed under his authority. Notice again, the verbs have been placed. And as Peter boldly proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, he said. Friends, there is nothing in the Bible that teaches that Christ does not become king of this world until his final advent. The witness of Scripture is clear. Jesus reigns and has all authority over this world now. And that reign will continue until and after his final advent. You know, another way of saying that is that what will be true at the end is already true at the beginning. The story of human history is the story of the increase of his government, as foretold in Isaiah 9. It is the record of the forward movement of the victory which was secured at the cross. This was the faith of the Older Testament prophets and saints who looked forward to the first coming, the arrival, the birth of Jesus. It was the first coming, not the final second coming, that was to issue forth the abundant blessings of God and his victory over all the world. My friends, I don't know about you or anybody else, but as a Christian, I want to believe what the Word of God teaches, and I'm sure you do too. And I want to have the same kind of faith and hope about the past, present, and future as the Bible believers, the saints in Holy Scripture had. And biblical faith, real biblical faith, is a faith of victory and triumph. Even though our churches are made up of less than perfect people, 
We can be certain that victory is ours regardless of the size of the schemes of our opposition. As a believer, you and I have to fight the good fight of faith and endure whatever persecution or trials that come our way. And we must stand up to whatever opposition presents itself to the message of the kingdom. And we are to do that from the vantage point of total victory of Christ in all opposition in all areas of life. Total victory in Christ over all opposition in all areas of life. Now, look again at verses 16 to 18. It describes the 24 elders falling on their faces and worshiping God. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. And notice this reference to the nation's rage, the wrath comes, the dead are to be judged, rewarding your saints, the prophets, those who fear your name, both small and great, and destroying the stores of the earth. So this is a hymn of praise to God for the victory he has already been won or he has already won through Christ. See, this is the constant emphasis of the book of Revelation. The victory of Christ has already begun, and nothing could or can turn it back. But now, there's that question that may come into your mind about verse 18, where it talks about the the time of the dead to be judged for the rewarding of your servants. The ESV, I think, uses the, the better term there, the rewarding of your servants. Because some translations make it sound like this refers to the final judgment, but it's not that at all. No, this is a reference to the martyrs, all those who had died to that point because of the persecutions of the Jews and the Romans. In chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, John was shown a vision there of those martyrs praying from under the altar of God in heaven, pleading for him to avenge their blood. And so here we have the answer to their prayers. Those faithful dead, they will be judged. Now, the word translated in some, some Bibles that way, it's a Greek term that calls forth rather the idea of avenging or vindication. So the meaning, if, if you happen to have a translation that reads it that way, is not judgment in the sense that those martyrs are being condemned, but rather, as the ESV has it, they're being rewarded. Those who died are going to be vindicated and avenged. They're the ones who fear the Lord. And it is upon their enemies, those who are the destroyers of the land, who will feel the brunt of God's wrath. Now let's finish the chapter. Look at verse 19. I'm reading from the New King James Version this time. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings and noises, thunderings and earthquakes and great hail. Let me remind you of what I said at the very beginning. This is one of the most challenging book, uh, chapters in all the book. But with a little familiarity with the Bible's own words and themes, you can see very clearly what this means. Uh, hopefully, we've already learned that to this point. And as you have come to understand by now, the major theme of Revelation is a vision of God's judgment against Israel and the closing out of the old covenant phase of God's plan and the further progress and implementation of the new covenant in Christ. See, the definitive symbol of the former was the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, and the definitive symbol of the latter is the explosive growth and expansion of the church of Jesus Christ into all the world. And so, with the fall of the temple at Jerusalem, the true temple takes center stage. The old one was gone, but the new one remains. God's temple is the church. And the Ark of the Covenant here in the vision appears in the temple, 
And let's be reminded, in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant is the place where God's Spirit dwelt among the people. And in the New Covenant age, God dwells in the hearts of all true believers through His Holy Spirit. In the Older Testament, access to the holiest part of that temple was restricted to just a handful of people. But in Christ, all may have access to the very throne of God Almighty. Our earlier Old Testament reading was from Psalm 18, and we read there of how God's presence and His guidance of His people in the Old Testament was associated with various meteorological and heavenly phenomena. And so now, here, John sees the same thing. But this is God's new presence, His new guidance in the new covenant and and through His church. It is through the ministry of faithful, Bible-believing, God-honoring, and Christ-focused churches that the doors of heaven are opened up to the world. The old way has passed on, destroyed forever, never to return. The new way has come through Christ, and it is destined for total worldwide victory. In closing, let me leave you with the words of Dr. R.J. Rustuni, who wrote way back in 1993. He said, Our Lord is as he has been since his resurrection. Referencing 1 Timothy 6.15, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He said, my Bible has no appendix informing me of this king's abdication. His plan remains the same. Before the end comes, he shall put down all rule, all authority, and all power. All his enemies shall be put under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15. And he said, to believe anything less is not to believe in him. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Let us pray.